Well, hey, everybody. I want to say hello again and welcome to the Neighborhood Church. Thanks for those of you tuning in online. We're glad you're here, and it's good to be God's people together. If you have a Bible in front of you or in your lap or on your phone, would you turn or swipe to John chapter 3? We'll be there in just a moment. And while you're turning there, I'll remind you of what you've heard a little bit throughout our service already, that we are in the season of Lent. Now, Lent is an old word that we think means spring or springtime, but it's known in the church calendar as the 40-day season that precedes Easter. It's 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter when you don't count Sundays. And because it's the season of giving and praying and fasting, because we don't count Sundays, that's great news for those of you who are fasting and you take the track of many Christians that reserve the Lord's Day Sunday for feasting. So no judgment if you're going to eat chocolate and watch TV tomorrow. We can still celebrate, amen? But for the rest of us, this is the season of repentance, of reorientation, and that's some of what we're going to be talking about here in just a moment. But for us at our church, as you see on the screen, we're in this series during Lent called Decrease, Increase. And you'll hear where that comes from in John chapter 3. But where we started, what launched us is from Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Basically, the tempter came and said, Hey, you're hungry. Satisfy your desire. Turn these rocks into bread. He tempted Jesus to have some more stuff. But Jesus resisted. He also tempted Jesus to have all the kingdoms of the world, to have that power. But Jesus resisted any shortcuts that didn't lead through the cross. So in those ways, the tempter still tempts us for our status. And then also the tempter came and said, look, if you jump off the highest point of this city, I'm pretty sure you can twist God's arm enough to have angels come and rescue you, and surely every person will know that you are God's son. He wanted his self to be known and the notoriety that comes with it, but Jesus resisted. And it's in those ways and in this series that we're looking at more examples that basically stem from this big idea. Jesus shows us how we too can decrease our stuff, our self, and our status so that we can increase our communion with God. And this way, Lent is kind of a spring cleaning to get us having our face and our feet set back on Jesus. And it's in the decreasing, the decluttering, the spring cleaning that we can set aside more and more of our attention to increase our communion with God. So last week, we talked about Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, and ouch, that one still stinging for me. You can go back and hear that on our podcast or on our Facebook video or our website. I don't know. You can find it if you look for it. But tonight, we're going to talk about how we might decrease ourself in order to increase our communion with God. And we're going to look at John the Baptist and how he decreased his self in John chapter 3. So I hope you're there with me. We're going to look at the less famous half of John chapter 3, and I think we're going to see some interesting notes and nuggets throughout. So let's start in verse 22, 
and we're going to read just a few verses tonight. After this, that would be his conversation with Nicodemus, the more famous half of John 3. Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he spent some time there with them and baptized. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem, because water was abundant there. And people kept coming and were being baptized. John, of course, had not yet been thrown into prison. Verse 25. Now a discussion about purification, or maybe your Bible says ceremonial washing, came. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, look, the man who was with you across the Jordan, the one about whom you testified, is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. And John replied, no one can receive anything unless it is given from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said that I'm not the Christ, but that I'm the one sent before him. The groom, he's talking about Jesus there, is the one who is getting married. The friend of the groom stands close by and, when he hears him, is overjoyed at the groom's voice. Therefore, my joy is now complete. Y'all look at verse 30. He must increase and I must decrease. So we like to say in our church, this is the word of God for the people of God. So we say, thanks be to God. And what we've been doing in the season of Lent, we don't always, but we add this prayer from the Episcopal or Anglican tradition. And this is the prayer that they'll pray, Christians all over the world, tomorrow in the third Sunday of Lent. Let's say these words out loud together. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, Amen and amen. Well, many of you know or have seen here at the Neighborhood Church that before I was a preacher, I was a worship leader. I would sing and play guitar. And because we still meet Saturdays at 5, on occasion I'm invited to go and do music or speak elsewhere on Sundays. And so several years ago, I'll never forget a service I was invited to lead worship at, and they asked me to do a little bit of hymns and a little bit of praise songs or modern contemporary songs like we just sang. And so because I play with my guitar and because I'm not really a classically trained musician, when I do hymns, and I love to do hymns, I sing a lot of hymns. I sing hymns when I'm leading here. I do them kind of the simplified rock and roll guitar Adam version, okay? So I think it's going well, and we're leading worship, and we're singing, and it's a very multi-generational congregation. And so I'm observing in this large auditorium the different pockets and groups of people, and I'm noticing that sometimes they stand and sometimes they sit. And as the service goes on, I realize that, oh, the people that were standing during the hymns are now sitting during the modern 
praise choruses. And so we kind of take a break, and I'm looking around, you know, as one does when he's trying to engage with God and people, you know, fully attentive, playing detective and looking at people, right? So I admit, probably not my best Sunday. And I start to look, and I know that we're about to sing another modern praise song. And so I notice that whole swaths of people begin to sit. But then I tag, I come back to like the chorus of How Great Thou Art. And I notice people stand up again. And so I'm watching this, you know, sorry, Lord, please forgive me. Not probably fully attuned and awake to him because I'm sitting there scratching my head saying, what is going on? So at the end of the service, I came up to the pastor and I said, hey, did I keep people standing up too long? Like, are we getting tired? Like, I'm really sorry. Sometimes I'm not mindful of how long we're standing up. He goes, no. I was like, oh, whoops, there's a story there. He kind of pulls me aside. He says, man, we've been having a problem. Since this other worship leader left, we've been having a hard time finding that sweet spot of a blended kind of service that many multi-generational churches are accustomed to. And what I mean by that is there are some in certain generations, and this is not true across the board because it was a multi-generational standing and sitting, that prefer hymns and prefer a certain way of singing and worshiping. And then there's this other group of people, again, not precisely split down the middle on the generational lines, but that are more engaged with the praise choruses. Those of you that are nodding and understanding this probably have grown up in church here in Dallas area because you've navigated some of this over the last couple decades. So he tells me that what they've been experiencing is when worship leaders such as me come in, They'll sing a hymn, and the people that like the hymns are standing because they're showing their pleasure at singing the real worship songs. And then when we switch over to this Hillsong United tune, they sit down to voice their protest and vice versa. So we had this whack-a-mole church congregation going on, and the pastor realizes this, and by the way, after I left that Sunday, I come to find out that there was even a notice that this particular group wanted to go to another part of the building, sing a couple hymns, and then just come in for the sermon. I mean, this was getting crazy, and it got me thinking as I went home and talked to Amy about this, because, you know, it was crazy, and now I'm talking to you about this. I told her, I said, look, I said, if the Lord gives me another 30, 40, 50 years, please, please, if I'm demanding, standing and sitting, that my church sings oceans, or so help me, will you slap me across the face? If I'm demanding Bethel and Chris Tomlin, just like the good old days and the good Lord wants, please shake me and say, it's not always about you. I think there's something really formative and important in parenting and our life with God to once in a while get your shoulders shook and say, hey, it's not all about you. I know that we have preferences. I know we have different tastes. But there's this other issue at work here that sometimes 
we can do things a certain way and keep going our own way so long that we realize sometimes that we're actually shutting ourselves off from what God wants to do in us. And so I hope that when I'm a senior adult, Lord willing, that I won't be like some of those senior adults trying to keep it all about me and my preferences. I just wonder that the more time and longer we follow Jesus, shouldn't we become more loving, more generous, more just, more merciful, more able to roll with the punches because we've lived some life? Shouldn't we become more like Jesus, not less? I believe that the answer is a matter of decrease and increase. Please hear me. These wonderful saints do amazing things for the kingdom of God. This is just a blind spot. Just like us young folk do amazing things for the kingdom of God and have our blind spots. But whether we've been following Jesus for five minutes or 50 years, we should always be saying what John says. He must increase and I must decrease. John understands very early and often that he is not the main character. He understands that it ain't about me and it ain't even my story. This is God's story and I'm so grateful to play a part. And this is what we can learn this evening. Because John refused to compete with Jesus for first place. And we can learn from his disposition and his declaration of decrease how to live in God's story. So if you get nothing else in the next few moments we have together, understand that if this is a shaking your shoulders wake-up call to say, it's not about you and that's okay, then I think we have done something to help us in our life, in our growth, and in our mission to bring others into God's story. Because it ain't your story, and it ain't my story. And the sooner we can understand this, the more we can be filled with God's life and love and justice. This is what we're after. Let's jump back into our text. I want to give you two interesting notes right at the beginning in verses 22 and 23. I think we get this interesting glimpse because so much of this chapter is overshadowed by the wonderful, beautiful, powerful, mysterious conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus that we don't often talk about these two little interesting notes. And the first is that Jesus and his disciples still baptized people early in Jesus's ministry. But if you have a Bible open, you can flip to John chapter 4 and notice that John says, uh, actually, Jesus didn't do any baptizing. It was his disciples. And could you imagine that give them another couple years or another couple decades, could you imagine the people standing and sitting in the church that said, well, I was baptized by Jesus, thank you very much. So you people baptized by James, are you sure you got baptized? Because I still see some sin behind your ears, dude. I was baptized by the main man. So I think Jesus in his wisdom was 
wise enough to let the disciples do this kind of baptizing, but how many of you before this moment really thought or caught that Jesus had baptism in that early phase of his ministry a part of what, his, what he was doing in the kingdom movement? This is fascinating. I think it's worth highlighting. The second interesting note is this. There was also a concurrent ministry with Jesus and John the Baptist. In a moment, we're going to talk about how John the Baptist knew what his role was, and he just said as much. I'm the one that kind of comes before. But what's fascinating is right here in John 23, 22 to 24, we see that the one who came before is still kind of hanging around. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, Paul bumps into some people years after Jesus and John were baptizing in this region who were still a disciple of John the Baptist. They're having these concurrent ministries and some people still follow John but John said early and often, though our ministries may be concurrent, make no mistake, they are not competing. John knew then that he was not first place. This was God's story. He's the prologue. The main chapter, one, two, three, four, and 5, and the climax of the story is all about Jesus. He's those little Roman numeral pages that a lot of y'all skip. Yet, there are still people who persist in increasing their own thoughts and agendas and not decreasing enough to let Jesus take center stage. So the issue is in verses 25 to 26. And I realized halfway through that I wrote NRSV on there, but I think I was reading a different translation. But you saw something about ceremonial washing or cleansing. Did you see this? That's the issue. You need to understand that in the Jewish tradition, there really isn't a category for baptism. There is a cleansing, a ritual cleansing that women and men would do routinely, but it was different than what John and Jesus and Christians would call baptism. So some Jewish folks, or maybe one Jewish person, came out and said, dude, what are you doing? I don't have a theological category for what you're up to. I've seen converts kind of baptized and welcomed, but what is it that's going on? But then just as quickly, we get this shift. That was the issue that started the thing, but then John's disciples, the ones with their own agenda, the ones that are going to persist doing their thing, the real issue becomes apparent. Let's see if this makes sense or if you can deduce this as well. Hey, John, you see those guys over there? What about our thing? What about our movement? We're the early adopters. We were in line way back in 2004 for that first iPhone or whenever that was. What about us? What about our notoriety? I love the Bible because it is such a human book. And on every page you get a glimpse into the human condition 
and a God who still works with us and within us. What we see here on the pages of Scripture is people just like you and me who want to matter, who want to be seen, who want to be a part of a movement. And I don't think that there's anything intrinsically wrong with that. As Toby shared earlier with the clothes closet, it matters when someone is known and seen and you can call them by name and they feel valuable. Nothing intrinsically wrong with that. There's reams of passages where God knows us and sees us. The problem comes when our value and visibility become central. The problem comes when we don't have enough wherewithal to take the step to the one that John is pointing to because we like being known over here for this thing. We like being affiliated with this church or this movement or this cause or this agenda more than we really care to be associated with Jesus. We want to be seen and serve the homeless or serve in the clothes closet so we can snap it and put it on Instagram. We want to tag it and show everyone that we've done a good thing. And here's the Father who sees in secret waiting for us to do it for His eyes only. And this is what we talked about before Lent began when we give, pray, and fast. God knows the human condition that we want to have our value and visibility be front and center. We want our work to matter, and we want our work to be the number one thing. But Jesus is over here waiting for us to take the next step beyond all that and say, nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when I can't work and be in the center point of your heart. I think... This is something that we're all discipled into with our American Christian culture. And Jesus calls us every day to say, hey, 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 don't miss me for the movement and the service and the disciplines. Don't love the experience of God more than you love God. Eugene Peterson said this almost 20 years ago in an article called Transparent Lives. Christian spirituality, the contemplative life, is not about us. There's that shoulder shake, right? It is about God. The great weakness of American spirituality is that it is all about us. Fulfilling our potential, getting the blessings of God, expanding our influence. By the way, he wrote this way before influencers were a thing. Finding our gifts, getting a handle on principles by which we can get an edge over the competition. Watch what he says. The more there is of us, the less there is of God. And some of you say, wait, wait, wait. But we're made in God's image. In Ephesians 2, we're God's handiwork. I am not discrediting the individual, fearfully, wonderfully made, knit together, precious miracle that is you. I'm just saying it ain't about you. The more there is of us at the center, the less there is of God. So this is why we learn from John's disposition. You know what that word disposition means? There's the definition in pink, so we don't miss it. 
the way in which something is placed or arranged, especially in relation to other things. So John's disposition is positioned in relation to Jesus. John says, I'm not the Messiah. It ain't about me. It ain't my story. Jesus is at the center of it all. My life finds its proper place in God's universe. And the good news about the universe in which God inhabits is that it's one whose bedrock is love and compassion and life and light. So he's generous in his giving. So when you give your whole self to him, he gives you everything back and then some. This is the remarkable paradox of the kingdom of God. This is why our culture cannot understand it when we're saying actualize, get yourself right, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm not saying that you should make room for more shame. I'm saying put yourself in proper relationship to a God who loves you even more than you do. But the problem is, if you continue to feast on yourself and your own whims and your own desires, you will become malnourished. And so you find yourself and you think rightly about yourself as someone who's beloved. Man, do we talk about this in this church all the time. We were talking with people this week about how we wasted so much time talking about God's love, but always feeling like he was against us and out to get us. And until we can experience, because you can't think your way, you can't hear your way into it, you have to surrender to it. Unless you experience that God really is love, and that you really are beloved, and you really can't be separated from the love that God has for you when you're in Christ Jesus, unless you have that foundation, you'll always keep trying to earn it, you'll always keep trying to justify yourself, you'll always keep trying to find value and visibility apart from the one who calls you beloved. So you're finding yourself in any other orbit that's not the one who says, you're enough. I love you. I'm with you. Quit feasting on yourself. Quit trying to fake it till you make it. Quit trying to justify yourself in front of others. You've already been loved more than you could ever ask or imagine. But we go out and we try to earn what's already been given. And the more you feast on yourself for the approval of others, you're going to wind up more and more malnourished. It ain't about you. And thank goodness, we cannot nor should not hold it all together. We cannot do it all. So when I'm at the center, it does something inside of me and around me. It gets my whole life out of whack. It gets my whole life out of balance. Because Jesus in the wilderness, if he turned them rocks into bread, there's something that he's done that short-circuited a reliance in the orbit of God's universe. And he knew enough to know that I shouldn't satisfy my every whim and desire because man does not live on bread alone. There's something that gets out of balance when I'm at the center, when I'm increasing and he's decreasing. So we shift our center of gravity. We used to show a video for baptisms, and when we had a baptism a little while back, we didn't show it for the first time in a long time. I'm going to show you this graphic. It's not from the video, but it may ring some bells. And even if you've never seen it before, I bet you can figure out the difference. One of these things is not like the other. 
There is a me-centric universe in which American, Christian, and consumeristic place spirituality is, is discipling us into. And so what happens is, because we are raised in the South or you are raised in the church, you get this wild hair that we need to go to church. And so what you do is you grab the church piece and you add it into the orbit of all the other things. And then it becomes like choir practice and soccer practice or your job or your uh, family life. You just add it to the orbit and you're keeping the plate spinning as this all orients around your thoughts, whims, and feelings. But then what happens when you say Jesus is Lord is this implicit thing that means I am not Lord. It also means in the Bible's context, Caesar, the Lord of the universe and the Prince of Peace, oh yeah, he's not Lord either. And it means that no political party today is our Lord. And it means that no nation is our Lord when we say Jesus is Lord, we're pledging allegiance first and foremost to Him. And so what happens is He becomes the center of our orbit. And even if church feels like another activity or hobby, which it can become because it's hard to do this thing, especially in a world today when we're starting to kind of get back out and feel the full speed of life again. Understand that what's not in the center of that second gravitational orbit is not the neighborhood church. Whoa, it's way bigger than that. And thank goodness, because we're not a big church. It's Jesus. The sum total of your spiritual journey can't be the neighborhood church. We're on the journey together with someone bigger. His name is Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life. And we sort out all of this in process together for however long God has us in this season. Jesus is at the center, and you're in his orbit and his story. So I bring my finances, I bring my sexuality, I bring my parental role, I bring my marital role, I bring all of my roles into this orbit and I let him show me how to live the way, the truth, and the life. We say a disciple in this church is being with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to love and live like Jesus in our everyday lives. You're living your life and yet you're in Christ and Christ is in you. So you say, okay, how then, Jesus, shall I proceed with this bit of my finance, this bit of my relationship, this bit of my parenting, this bit of my vocation. You consult Jesus. He's at the center. And when he says, give sacrificially, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, um, bless those who persecute you, you know, love other. When, when, you, when you hear this, you say, okay, because I said you're Lord, then give me the strength to then put my feet into this invitation. That's what it means when you say what you hear out there in the world, God is at the center of our marriage. Well, does it look like self-sacrificial love and generosity and forgiveness? Well, no. Then you must decrease and he must increase. 
We need to shift our center of gravity because your marriage and your Jesus and your everything else is still just orbiting around you and your whims and your desires and your imperfections. And so we hear God say, that's okay, that's okay. Remember, you said, I'm Lord. You give me everything, I give you everything and more in return. So we repent. That's the word. Repent means a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Here's another synonym. Repentance is reorientation. You turn your face and your feet back to Jesus. Whoops, Jesus, I climbed back up here in the center. I'm the sun. And we need Copernicus to come and tap us on the shoulder and say, "Uh uh-uh, you've been the earth. And you need to completely shift your center of gravity. It's not orbiting around you. It's orbiting around God. I messed up that Copernicus thing. Just delete that. Um, We'll figure it out later in (laughs) post-production. There is no post-production. The monumental shift in the center of gravity is when you say Jesus is Lord for the first time. And when you get it off track... You learn through repentance the millionth time, oh, whoops, I'm treating you like an add-on, not my Lord. That's what we're getting at. That's John's disposition, his relationship into something else. And now his declaration. This is the second piece of the puzzle. He must increase and I must decrease. This is what I've been saying all along. It's about redirection. It ain't about me, it's about you, not self-satisfaction. I got it, thank you, my life, my way, my rules. No, 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 no. John didn't say, yeah, why why are they baptizing over there? That was my thing. No, no, no. He says, dude, why are you still here? He's the one. It's not about, it is about humility, not vanity. There are reams of these kinds of teachings in the New Testament that say, Consider yourselves not better than anybody else, but in humility, value others, look to others as well, which is why it's about other-centeredness, not self-centeredness. That's Christianity in a nutshell, to love your God who's an other, and then love your neighbor as yourself who's an other. Ours is an other-centered faith. That's hard for y'all introverts, I know. But we're called to have the arrows pointed out. What are the needs of others? How can I connect with God? How can I connect with my neighbor? John knew his role. And I wonder if we know our role. And that's why John uses this metaphor and this imagery of wedding. Do you remember this? Years ago, I was officiating a wedding for um, a guy that grew up with my brother. And it was at a country club off of Preston in North Dallas. And he's a really good dude, and we were all gathered together with the groomsmen. And because it was at this country club, we were in like a men's dressing room. Like it was a room adjacent to the locker room. And by God's grace, we weren't in the locker room because that would have been weird to sit there for an hour before the wedding starts. So people were dressed. That's what I'm saying. We're sitting there in our tuxes, And then people, these men would come out of the locker room dressed and they would kind of just shoot the breeze. So they're like putting on their shoes again. Like they they got everything and they're sitting in this like dressing room. So we're sitting there and if you've never been in a groom's party or you haven't done weddings like me, it's a weird scene. 
It's prob- maybe it's the same in the bridal suite, but I feel like the guys are like, they're ready, done. I got my rented tux on, like what now? And so it's super awkward. And so he is freaking out. He loves this woman. They're still married and it's beautiful. They have a wonderful relationship. But he's like, this is big. How am I going to mess this up? So he's like kind of spiraling out and in walks these other dudes that are putting on their shoes and they see us in our tuxes and they just look at him. They see he's sweating and they say, you're right. And he goes, what? And he says, don't do it. And, and then I said, no, no, uh, we're doing it. And then the other guy chimes in and says, it's not too late, man. And then we said, it is too late, man. And he's kind of looking at him. And all this other gaggle of guys that just got off the, the links or whatever, the golf course, they're saying, good luck. <laughs> You're going to need it. No way. Should you leave now? I'll open up the back door for you. And they're just like going nuts. And he's not laughing. And then the other groomsmen look at these guys and say, dude, nah, man, you know I've been married for three years. It, it's hard. We're, we're doing fine. We're, you can do it, man. And then they go, ha, yeah. And then this other guy says, dude, you know this, man. You've been prepping for this. You're ready for this, man. And literally, I'm sitting there like 30 minutes before we're going to like stand there and have all the people come down. And there's five guys saying, don't do it, man. And then there's five other guys saying, yes. And I'm reading John 3, and I'm like, this is John the Baptist. He is the best man that come heck or high water is going to get the groom and the bride to the altar. And the problem is, is that some of these guys are going to say, I don't know, and come Acts 19, they're still so hung up on their agenda and their whole thing, and they're not yet fully married. But the good news is that in Acts 19, Paul says, uh-uh, uh-uh, dude, get married. And they are baptized, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and they continue on with Jesus at the center of their orbit. But John knows my role is not to be the guy, but I'm a guy, and I'm so glad to be a part of God's story. This is the posture that we ought to have. His role is to get the groom and the bride to the altar. Jesus will do the rest. But the problem is, whatever our role is, again, it's always in relation to the groom. What is your role? Because I meet and talk with a lot of pastors, it's easier for us, I think, sometimes <laughs> to read the books and write in our journals, like, this is my call from God. I want to know what's your call from God at TI and at your school. I want to know the story that God is writing and inviting you to participate in. And sometimes you can do something overt like a Bible study at work. But other times there's a role for you in your circles, in your spheres, and it's always about having Him 
increase and you and your agenda and vanity and visibility and value taking a back seat because it ain't about the groomsmen. It's about the bride and the groom. So how do we decrease? Yes, repent. Yes, fast. Yes, spiritual disciplines. And I would say this. The best way to decrease is through displacement. To be filled with the life, light, and love of God that displaces death, darkness, and sin. It's decrease through increase. Do you get this idea? Or do I have to freak you out and talk about a guy getting into a bathtub that's too full and the water spills out over the edge? That's displacement. We don't need to talk about that or think about that. You're still thinking about the men's locker room. <laughs> this is the idea. John 15, like we've been talking about, abiding in Christ. The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his beauty and grace. See, I know hymns. It's about decrease through increase. What's the best way to make it through Lent with whatever fast you're doing? Feast on God. What's the best way to decrease that reaction, that habit, that hang-up? Increase your communion with God. Abiding in Him. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, He'll prune. But keep Him at the center. If Lent is a time of spring cleaning, of decreasing, of decluttering, Let's go into the next week of Lent with these questions and John's example resonating in our heads and our hearts. I give these questions to you. Maybe you can unpack them in your journal or in your neighborhood group. In what areas of my life am I the center of my universe? Jesus is here swinging around in the orbit, but I am firmly, squarely, number one, I haven't yet given that over to him. Second, John knew his role. What's my role in God's story? Don't worry, you don't have to be the main character that's already taken. But man, he loves and wants you to play a part. What's your role? Third, what are the things that bring increase or filling into my life? And I mean specifically, it's when I hear this, do that, make time, create space for this, go and help and meet with and talk with and do that. What are those things? Chances are God is probably saying, yeah, keep doing this. But may we decrease, not self-deprecate, but may we decrease with a healthy view that we are beloved, that there's nothing more to earn, there's nothing left to prove, so that God's life, love, and mission may be increased in our life, in our families, in our neighborhood, and world. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.